Welcome to Question Period. I'm Glenn McGregor. Joyce Napier is away today. Merry Christmas to those celebrating. Today on the show, we're diving into some of the most talked about stories from 2022, from the economy to the war in Ukraine. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. It was a record-breaking year, but also a difficult one for many Canadians. Inflation hit a 40-year high, and there are now concerns of a possible recession sometime in the new year. To battle soaring inflation through the year, the Bank of Canada increased its key interest rate seven times since March, with the latest hike on December 7th bringing it to 4.25%. The last time the bank's policy rate was this high was in January 2008. The central bank has faced criticism over its approach. So, is the fight against inflation nearly over, and is the recession in our near future? To discuss that, I'm joined by former Bank of Canada Governor and Special Advisor at Osler, Hoskin & Harcourt, Stephen Paulos. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Um, interesting year in ec the economic uh, front. We've had seven interest rate increases in nine months. The rate is now at 4.25%, the highest it's been since, I think, January 2008. And it's not just a Canadian problem, it's central banks all over the world. I'm just wondering why the central banks didn't predict this inflation crunch earlier and act sooner so that we wouldn't be in the situation where we're having these consecutive rate increases. You know, those questions always seem easier after the fact, don't they, Glenn? But the fact is that uh, the strategy all along was to counter the risk of deflation and what comes with that often is depression or very, very prolonged recession. That's what we were trying to avoid back in 2020. And to make sure of that, all central banks uh, have sort of stayed in that easing mode for longer than you would have according to your textbook. But it did offset that risk. And I think inflation might have peaked at 3.5%, something like that. And that wouldn't have been a big deal for us to counter and uh, get back down into the 1% to 3% range. But just at the wrong moment, Putin invaded Ukraine. And you get this doubling up, you know, like sort of 8%, that kind of thing. Well, in that situation, you've got a whole new shock, a whole new landscape to deal with. And so that could never be anticipated. And it actually can't be fought in the usual way. Really, central banks are making sure that that underlying 3.5 gets reversed and that the shock coming from Ukraine doesn't infect the economy. It's a tough job. It's not easy. Your successor at the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklin, in his year-end address talked about that invasion of Russia as being one of the key drivers. He also talked about uh, the, the stress on uh, global supply chains yes. uh, uh, as well. Yep. None of those things, though, are necessarily impacted by a, a, a rate increase. And there is a school of thought that uh, increasing the interest rates makes it harder for businesses to invest in bolstering their supply chains, and it could be counterproductive in those situations. This is kind of a unique kind of inflation, isn't it? Yes, it is. Very unique. Most of the inflation we're seeing is coming from outside, and you can't actually do anything about it. The normal reaction would be to let it pass through and not actually try to do anything about it. But the risk in not doing anything would be that it would infect that underlying inflation process domestically, get embedded in expectations, and then last a long time. And so it's to counter that risk that all the activity has been going on at central banks. And that's, of course, a really important risk. We can't go through what we did back in the 70s and 80s again. So preventing that. 
Do you think, though, the bank is too tethered to this target of 2% inflation that's early 90s, I think, is that, is that when, it, uh, yes. when, we, when we set it? Yeah. Uh, couldn't, in a situation like this, where we have these ex- exceptional drivers of inflation, maybe have a little more latitude to go higher and, and, and rather than you know, following along this orthodoxy that we've got to keep it at 2% at, at the expense of, frankly, economic growth, jobs, mm-hmm. investment, wages? Well, no, I was there when we picked 2%. Uh, I did the research behind that, and I think it's still the right thing. It's, it's a place where people just don't think about inflation, and that's what you really want in the economy, people to make their decisions without worrying about inflation. But I get back to the original point, and that is I think inflation is going to fall to between 35 or 4% at most all by itself because mm-hmm. of the... The, the supply shortages mm-hmm. that are being resolved because of the, the impact of the commodity price increases. Mm-hmm. Like the fertilizer, for instance, it goes up uh, last spring. You used it for planting this year. It hits the grocery store shelves now. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's a long process, and so it takes a while to iron those things out. It's going to go away by itself. All we have to do with monetary policy is get inflation back down below 3%, and that's not far from that 3.5 that I mentioned. So I don't think uh, people should get well, the picture. How, how, how long do you think that is? Well, I we, think we get, to get there because we're, we're nowhere close to that right now. Yeah, that's correct. Well, you, you, both the United States and Canada, each data point on inflation is surprising the analysts on the downside. Why do you think that is? Uh, first of all, the mechanical part uh, that I've mentioned is coming down all by itself. But secondly, the tools they're using are having bigger impacts than they have in the past. And so as we go forward, it's going to come down quite rapidly over the next six, nine months. That's, that's, that's what I think. A big political issue uh, here on Parliament Hill, Hill is, is to what extent government spending has contributed to overall inflation. Conservative leader has been very aggressive on this point. He blames the federal government. Yeah. In their last fiscal update, they included <clears throat> billions of dollars more spending above and beyond just pandemic relief. To what extent do you think the government's fiscal policy is contributing to inflation? Well, there's no question that when the economy is in a state of excess demand, which everybody believes it is, uh, adding to that excess demand through fiscal policy is the wrong time to do that. Uh, so if you had a, a tighter fiscal policy this year, this past year, uh, then the target for interest rates to rise would be lower, right? Because the, there would be less work to do by yeah. central banks. That's true in every country, you know, same, same argument. So the mix of fiscal and monetary policy can make a big difference to the side effects, like you talk about yeah. effect on people's mortgages. That would be less of an effect if, if that were the case. And so to me, it is a bit of a lost opportunity. It's kind of behind us now. We are going to have a very slow growth period or maybe even a a modest recession, yeah. so that's usually when fiscal policy does some of the lifting. That's just the way it is. Just the last question I want to ask you about the attacks on the Bank of Canada, mm. often from Pierre Poilievre, also from Jagmeet Singh on its policy. Do you think there's a risk that Canadian will start, Canadians will start losing confidence in the bank? Well, I think it is a risk, no question. It's unfortunate that that degree of politicization happened and it has continued, right? There's still an awful lot of uh, it should be open debate about what monetary policy is and what it's doing, but in a respectful way that actually it's okay to debate it, but it's somebody else's job. Okay, And so uh, I think that's unfortunate, but I think the most important thing to Canadians is the results. And so the bank is clearly very committed, resolute, as the governor said, uh, in getting this back to normal. And that's where we were before the pandemic, full 
completely healthy economy, 40-year low in unemployment, and inflation right on target. We need to get back there. That's why we've been so resilient to that shock compared to what people were expecting. It's because we're in a really healthy situation, and we need to get back there. Stephen Polos, thanks for your time. It's my pleasure. When we come back, Ukraine's resolve. The war in Europe continues as we approach the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What is needed next in the conflict? Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Russia's war in Ukraine is set to enter its 11th month, and fears remain it could become an even wider conflict. Russia began its invasion on February 24th, launching attacks on several cities. Since then, there have been civilian casualties, war crimes, and the destruction of critical infrastructure. In recent months, Russia has suffered a series of military setbacks, and Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky was recently named Time Magazine's Person of the Year for, quote, proving that courage can be as contagious as fear. So what could come next in this conflict? And what more can Canada do to support Ukraine as the invasion approaches the one-year mark? Joining me now is Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev. Ambassador, I thank you for coming in. I believe you arrived in Ottawa shortly after, by a couple of weeks, the invasion of Ukraine. When you go back home, hopefully over the holidays sometime, what are you expecting will be different? The country is different and the people are different. And on the one side, the difference is the huge damage what Russians invade and done to our country, both in the physical damage and also a lot of suffering to the people. But in the same time, uh, the difference, what I feel now talking to many people in Ukraine and uh, the feeling I, I, I get and I do believe I will see it in Ukraine, this first is the feeling of unity, courage and bravery of all Ukrainians as a nation to stand for uh, the country, to stand for our freedom. And another thing, what, what Ukraine is now and Ukrainians are going through a very hard winter with the attacks on the critical infrastructure, with mm -hmm. the lack of heating, water, electricity. There is one unique thing what we as Ukrainians now realize and probably want to share. There are a lot of things in this world that we all took for granted. Mm -hmm. And many people around the world still take for granted. Being with your close one, having a peaceful sky, having um, you know some warmth in your home, having the, the electricity ability of your children to go to school. When Russia invaded to Ukraine, these things changed a lot. And now we understand that they are so important. So this kind of the feeling of, um, um, of being happy with having the small things that make the people happy, make the families together, this is something what uh, Ukrainians do feel now. Right. You mentioned electricity and Canada is contributing, I think, $114 million to help rebuild some of the electrical infrastructure, also contributing about a billion dollars in military aid. We've taken in refugees. Uh, you have a big part of your job is interfacing, I think, with the Canadian government on these kinds of issues. What more are you looking for other commitments, either financial or uh, otherwise, from the Canadian government? And first of all, I would like to thank you. Both Canadians for the strong support of Ukraine, especially since the very first day of invasion. Uh, the big part of the support in Canada is among the 
top supporters uh, of Ukraine um, during Russian full-scale uh, war. And also, I would like also to reflect on the big support of the Canadians, uh, both donating to Canadian Red Cross that is now having the projects in Ukraine, to Canadian Ukraine Foundation for, who supported the, um, the humanitarian appeal. Of course, the, the basic thing what we need to, to win this war is to keep the steadfast support and to uh, both Canada and our other allies to be with Ukraine till the victory. That is important because this takes the time and the effort. What Russia has, be, has been doing in Ukraine, uh, uh, sometimes it's a just our need because when they started in the mid of October uh, bombing the critical infrastructure, mm -hmm. there was a new need arising. That was the support and we, we are very grateful uh, that yesterday Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland announced um, the support to restore the grids. And of course, like on the military side, financial side, humanitarian side, sanctions, these are the things that uh, war brings as a need to Ukraine and that is what we will be working with the Canadian government to help us uh, on all of these fronts. Uh, you mentioned when the war ends. And are you confident that, you know, even though Ukraine has had a lot of success on the battlefield, surprised a lot of people, I think, uh, how successful they've been, they're still fighting a much larger, much better equipped Russian army. Do you really believe that Ukraine can ultimately win a conventional war and drive out the Russian invaders? We not only believe we are doing this every day on all of the fronts, on the battlefield, on a diplomatic front, working to keep the unity of our partners and supporting Ukraine. And it's also very important for, I think, all, all the Western world and all of the democratic world that Ukraine really wins this war. Because it's not only the, the Russian... Um, attempts to invade Ukraine as a sovereign country. It's also a challenge uh, how the world lives. If one country just one day decide to invade another country, just cut the borders which were rec international recognized, what the, you know, what signal um, they are sending to, to all of the other countries, uh, whether they are big or small, uh, we need to preserve the approach that each sovereign country has its security and has its sovereign borders. So it's so important not only for us. And for us, of course, Ukraine is winning now, liberating many of the, the territories. And it's the ultimate desire of all Ukrainian people to win the war. Right. Um, your President Zelensky has gotten a lot of media attention since this uh, invasion began cover of Time magazine, he's on the David Letterman show. Um, what has his leadership meant to the Ukrainian people over the past 10 months? His leadership is uh, crucially important, leading the country during the war. It's both, you know, this first, his appearance just a few hours after the invasion from his office saying, we are staying here, we will fight. And of course, that was a huge signal, uh, not only to Ukrainians, because we know that you know that the president is one of Ukrainians leading Ukrainians, but also it was a big signal to all the world 
that here is Ukraine, here is democratic election, Ukrainian um, government, who is staying with the people of Ukraine on the ground and ready to take the fight to protect the country. And of course, it's also important uh, to tell the world truth, because we are all living in a world which is full of disinformation. And we know that Russia is trying to break uh, the unity, trying to spread this disinformation. And with president's leadership telling every day, every evening president is doing his address to the people of Ukraine, very honestly telling what is happening, uh, giving the advice, giving the hope to people, and also spreading the truth to all of the world. It helps to fight with Russian disinformation. It helps to, uh, you know, to bring this support to Ukraine. Right, right. Fighting on a different kind of battlefield, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Ambassador Kobolev, thank you for your time. Thank you. Coming up, sports under the spotlight, from the sexual assault scandal at Hockey Canada to the World Cup and human rights. What culture change could we see in sports in the year ahead? We'll speak to Sports Minister Pascal Saint-Ange. Stay right here with Question Period. Abuse in sports 2022 saw several controversies, both at home and abroad. A wave of complaints and allegations across several different sports started in the spring. Sports Minister Pascal Saint-Ange called the situation a crisis. Hundreds of gymnasts signed an open letter detailing the emotional, physical and sometimes sexual abuse of athletes. In June, Saint-Ange announced new measures to try and fight back against the toxic culture in many sports including appointing a sport integrity commissioner who can independently investigate abuse allegations. Then over the summer, Hockey Canada was put under the microscope. St. Ange ordered a forensic audit of the organization after she found out Hockey Canada had settled a lawsuit with a woman who said she was sexually assaulted by multiple members of the country's 2018 World Junior Hockey team. It was later revealed Hockey Canada maintained a fund used in part to settle abuse claims. So, is a widespread culture change possible in Canadian sports? And what more can be done to tackle it? Joining me now is Sports Minister Pascal Saint-Ange. Minister, thank you uh, for coming in. Your portfolio, it's an important one, but historically not controversial, not as bu busy as you might have expected it to be this year. But in 2022, you've had to deal with allegations of misconduct in multiple sports, hockey, of course bobsledding, rugby, gymnastics. As a rookie minister, is this what you were expecting for your first post? Well, not really. Uh, it's been a pretty packed year, as, as you said. And, but I think that everyone that gets involved uh, in politics, me including, uh, we want to make change and we want to help people. We're all doing it for the right reason. So, you know, hearing about all those stories about uh, abuse and maltreatment, it's been, it's been really hard because uh, those stories are really are horrific mm -hmm. and that's not what you expect from sport. Uh, but at the same time, it's the fact that people are talking, uh, the fact that it's no longer as taboo as it used to be, mm. uh, it means that we're truly starting to see change happening. And uh, I want to make sure that uh, that change does happen. Let, let's go right into Hockey Canada, because that was yeah. obviously the big, the big story this year. Your government uh, decided to cut off funding. Uh, the board resigned. We now have a new board in place. Are you confident that changing the board of directors will change culture at the rink, on the bench, in the dressing rooms? No, I think that uh, there's a lot of work to do through, through how the, 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 the 
hockey culture uh, because some of the stories that we've heard are yes at the national level but some of them are also at the provincial and territorial level uh, so for sure there's a lot of work to do across the organization to uh, better educate young players about consent and sexual violence uh, and also you know the fact that uh, the the cases were so badly managed uh, I think that having a new board will uh, bring in better governance um, and for sure the people that uh, are going to be elected uh, will say about that but you know the, the, the people that were chosen um, are bringing in different expertise uh, to the table so I think that's going to be interesting to watch uh, but for sure there's a lot of work ahead of them. Yeah, I mean, Those are structural things yeah. and changes that have to be made but is there something about hockey and men's hockey in particular that creates this culture of toxic masculinity. We've heard some people describe it as uh, misogyny, homophobia. This seems to be uh, not unique to hockey, but it seems more pronounced. Is there something culturally about hockey in Canada uh, that's causing that? Yeah, I think uh, that for a long time, uh, hockey has been in its own bubble. And, you know, there's uh, so much... You know, everybody is involved one way or another in, in, in hockey, whether it's because they have children playing or because uh, they know someone. But uh, I think that we're creating this stardom, uh, you know, uh, culture around um, young men playing hockey because of the NHL and all the money that's, that's into it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, there is definitely a, a toxic culture and toxic masculinity uh, you know, associated with hockey. Um, so that's why it's so important to bring in more education and more training about uh, what type of athletes we're expecting, uh, not only good players, but most of all good citizens that respect the law and respect women and respect the public. Um, but I think that uh, the important thing is that uh, people are noticing now. and. Parents are noticing too, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, right. And, and a lot of parents who have their kids in minor hockey, they pay fees to their yeah. local leagues, a lot of money. I know my kid used to be in minor hockey too, in girls hockey. Uh, can you guarantee them that that money that they pay, part of it is not going to settle sexual uh, abuse claims in future? Well, I think uh, that it's uh, the responsibility of the board to make sure, first of all, that their financial um, audits are more public uh, and that the uh, and that they give answers to parents about what they're doing with money yeah. uh, and that they're being transparent and honest about that um, the federal government um, and that's something that people might not know but we uh, all the federal uh, the, the federation sports federation are independent from the federal government mm -hmm. uh, what's the link that we have with those organizations is, is through uh, financial agreements right. Uh, because we're funding sports so that our athletes can can thrive and have all the support that they need. Uh, so they're still independent, but uh, what I'm doing right now is reviewing how what we put in those contract agreements mm, right. so that we raise the bar in regards to governance, financial transparency, training, education, and safe sport. Minister, thank you for coming in. Appreciate your time. Thank you. After the break, new conservative chapter. After a contentious leadership race, the Conservative Party of Canada will be going into the new year with a new leader. What direction is the party taking and how can they take on the Liberal government? Conservative commentator Tasha Carradine joins us next on The Scrum. Stay right here in the question period.
Conservative Crossroads, the Conservative Party of Canada's third leadership race in five years, was often called a battle for the soul of the party. Six candidates fought it out over six months in a campaign period marked by personal attacks, debates over populism, and attacks on institutions. Still, the party saw record membership numbers, making it the largest political party in Canada's history, followed by a massive victory for Pierre Poilievre. Meanwhile, two Conservative Premiers, Ontario's Doug Ford and Quebec's Francois Legault, comfortably held on to their majorities after elections in both provinces. And further west, Danielle Smith was elected leader of the United Conservative Party of Alberta, running on a platform of more independence for the province. So, where is the Conservative movement headed in Canada? The Scrum is here to answer that. Marika Walsh is a senior political reporter for the Globe and Mail. Rachel Aiello is the senior digital parliamentary reporter in our CTV Ottawa Bureau. And our special guest this round is conservative strategist and author of The Right Path, Tasha Carradin. Uh, Tasha, let's start with you. Uh, you helped run Jean Charest's campaign. Six-month leadership race was acrimonious, some say divisive. It's almost a cliche to declare a party united after a leadership race, but do you really see the people who back Charest getting behind Pierre Polyev now? Well, I think that um, it's, uh, it was an acrimonious race, and I think that the dust is settling. Um, a lot of people have either become involved in various things. There was a by-election recently. A lot of people turned out to help in that. And uh, I think that behind the scenes, uh, the real question is the next election. So I can't speak for all the people uh, who were involved in the campaign. Um, some of them, are, I think, are involved. Some of them are not. Some have gone back to, I mean, Mr. Charest has gone back to, uh, to practicing law. So um, I think it's a, it's a mixed bag. Everyone's waiting to see, you know, what shakes out for 2023. Is, is a united party an exaggeration or is it is something like that? No, I think the party is united. I think that Mr. Polyev's victory was very decisive, um, and uh, it's more a question of people deciding what you know what's their priority going to be. A lot of people got involved in this race, myself included, right. who had not been involved in the party for quite a while, and um, so you know we're uh, we're all playing different different roles in the conservative movement, which is a larger thing, I think, than the party itself. Marika, I want to ask you about some of the positions that Pierre Polyev took in that leadership race. Uh, the cryptocurrency, uh, he came support of the Freedom Convoy. He assailed the Bank of Canada. What Are we still seeing those kinds of messages from him or is he trying to downplay them or, or even pivot now? I, I think he's certainly tried to downplay some of those more controversial ones. But, you know, in particular on the Freedom Convoy, for example, whether or not, it's clearly not a winner for him in mm. the vast majority, but it's still, the polls show that about a third of Canadians either support the Freedom Convoy or were against the use of the Emergencies Act. That's about the popular vote that Justin Trudeau got to get his in government. So, you know, it's not a tiny sliver of the population that supports that. So I don't think we see him pivot away from it, but we see that it's not a winner for him in the general electorate the way other issues like cost of living are, and that's why he's focusing on that. I think the question going forward, going off what Tasha said, is what will be their path to victory? Mm -hmm. How do we see them cobble together a strategy that actually gets them from a strong opposition bench position to government? And I think we haven't yet seen that from him. In fairness, it's still early days, and a mm -hmm. lot of oxygen was sucked up by the inquiry into the Freedom Convoy.
Uh, Rachel mentioned in the introduction uh, Doug Ford and uh, Francois Legault both winning re-election and then Daniel Smith, of course, in Alberta. Does that hurt the federal conservatives? Because we have seen this trend in the past where voters uh, tend to like to have their representation at the premier provincial level kind of balanced off at the federal level. I think it's certainly a challenge for Pierre Polyev, both in becoming the main foil for Justin Trudeau, because you're seeing these one-off fights, the Prime Minister versus Ford or Daniel Smith. So there is that bit of a friction of he's not getting that attention because the fight is elsewhere. But I think some of the, the provincial fights have put him in a bit of a sticky spot. I'm thinking recently of Doug Ford's notwithstanding fight right. with QP. He was quite silent on that as a guy who was for the working people. He didn't really have much to say. And then what's happened in Alberta with Daniel Smith and the Sovereignty Act, all he really said was, well, you know, if I'm Prime Minister, that won't happen, we won't have these fights, which is all fine and well to say, but <laughs> wait until you're Prime Minister, you're running on a spend less platform, and the health uh, care issue is still a thing, provinces right. are still coming to you asking for money, what do you do then? Right. Uh, Tasha, we, we don't know how long the NDP Liberal deal is going to hold up. Are the Conservatives ready to fight an election in 2023, or do Canadians need more time to get to know Pierre Poilievre? Well, I think the Conservatives, I mean, certainly the fundraising aspect has gone incredibly well. Um, they have uh, a very, I think, very united caucus at this point. Um, and uh, it's a question of ensuring that they have candidates in, uh, in all their ridings ready to go. Uh, that process is, is obviously ongoing. And I think, look, the, um, Mr. Polyev had a lot of exposure. Canadians had a lot of exposure to him during a very long leadership race. So I think yeah. they have an idea of who he is. The real question is, what's the issue going to be? And if the election is next year, I think it advantages the Conservatives because they can talk a lot about inflation, cost of living, those kinds of things. Um, you know, if the economy starts to pick up, that could change. So uh, in some sense, I think that um, they would probably welcome an election, but I, I think the NDP would not. So <laughs> considering they've got the balance of power, we may not see one. Right. Uh, Marika, I want to ask you about Polyab's media strategy. You've mm -hmm. covered an enormous number of press conferences and scrums. Not very many with Pierre Polyev. Uh, he seems to be pretty set on this idea that he's not going to do a lot of media, at least with the parliamentary press gallery. Uh, is that a sustainable strategy for him, do you think? I mean, I, I think that other politicians and other governments have shown that it can be. I mean, if you look at Doug Ford, for example, he was not, you know, during the pandemic he had a lot of press conferences, but other than that, he is not super available to the media, in particular on one-on-ones and right. in large press conferences. And so I think we've seen that it can work. It worked for Stephen Harper for a time, and I think it can work with Pierre Polyev for a time as well, depending on what's in the news. I mean, you saw that he was almost nowhere to be seen right. during the inquiry into the Emergencies Act. And if they set the tone now that they won't be doing it, maybe they will get less fire on it. Mm. I think from journalists' perspective, when he is available for a press conference, it would help us all if we asked about issues that face Canadians and not the issues that face us, i.e. whether or not he's doing whether more not press, he's conferences. Doing press conferences. Yeah. Um, right. agree. But that's just my own, my own little beef with some of the yeah. questions that he does get. But certainly we see that he is focused more on community media, on media yeah. in the battlegrounds where they need to win in the next right. election if they are going to form government. And right. so it's just a different right. strategy. Right, good. Okay. Uh, Tasha Kerrigan, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Marika and Rachel will stay with us for our next segment. Still to come, political roundup. Former NDP leader Tom Mulcair joins the Scrum next to reflect on the biggest political stories of 2022 and what to watch for in the new year. Stay right here with Question Period. Sure Health from Green Shield Canada. Every year, Canadians spend millions of dollars on healthcare expenses not covered by their government health insurance. 
That's why so many Canadians have Sure Health coverage from Green Shield Canada. Sure Health plans help protect you and your family from expenses not covered by your government health plan. Both everyday expenses like prescription drugs, dental care, and vision care, and unexpected expenses like physiotherapists, chiropractors, emergency medical travel expenses, and more. And if you or someone in your family has a serious accident or illness, Sure Health plans help cover those expenses too. And all Sure Health plans include online digital mental health services from Inkblot. Best of all, Sure Health plans are affordable and easy to get. With Sure Health, you can submit your claims online and have the payments deposited directly to your bank account. There's a selection of Sure Health plans. Some require a few medical questions, but for most, your acceptance is guaranteed with no health exam and no medical questions when you apply. Protect yourself and your family from healthcare expenses not covered by your government health plan, including prescription drugs, dental care, vision care, physiotherapists, chiropractors, emergency medical travel expenses, and more. And remember, this is lifetime protection that won't be canceled, regardless of your age or health, as long as payments are made. If you're self-employed, don't have coverage at work, are recently retired or retiring soon, get Sure Health now and protect yourself and your family from rising healthcare expenses not covered by your government health plan. Don't delay. Visit surehealth.ca now or call 1-844-230-7873 for your free, personalized Sure Health info package. That's surehealth.ca. Oh, marvelously. Dreamland is calling. Oh, marvelously. Curled up or sprawling. It's time to rest. Boxing Week is here. Save the tax this Boxing Day only. Shop now at Sleep Country. Uber Eats hates late. In fact, 95% of orders are on time. But occasionally, something unpredictable happens. Like a minion makes a break for it. Thanks to a gust of wind and a soon-to-be-fired assistant manager. And... Before pinning everyone in at your favorite taqueria. And if Kevin comes between you and your tacos... We'll make it right with three months of $0 delivery fee. That's kind of a big deal. It's been a busy year in Canadian politics, kicking off with the trucker convoy protests at the end of January and into February, followed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which shined a light on Canada's NATO commitments and foreign affairs policy. Former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole stepped down and made way for a six-month leadership contest rife with vitriol and personal attacks, and longtime MP Pierre Polyev winning a stunning victory for the top spot. Plus, the Liberals and the NDP signed a supply and confidence agreement, all but guaranteeing the Prime Minister will stay in power until 2025. So, what were the top political stories this year, and what are we watching for in 2023? Marika Walsh and Rachel Aiello are back, and our special guest this round is former NDP leader, and CTV News political analyst Tom Mulcair. Tom, uh, let's start with you. Your pick for biggest political story this year. I think that one of the biggest political stories of the year was the re-election of Francois Legault's CAC government. They had a solid majority going into the election. Everyone predicted they would win, and they did just that. It's how they won that I think should be of concern to all Canadians, and that's what I was going to drill down on a bit. You see... 
they went hard on ethnic nationalism. And it's not something that we've seen in Quebec politics for a couple of generations. You see, it's not enough for Mr. Legault that 90% of the people in the greater Montreal area can hold a conversation in French, which is a very high number. Right. No, he's very worried about the fact that people are sometimes speaking other languages at home. And what we call the cultural communities, the ethno-cultural communities that have arrived from around the world, have picked up French, the laws required their kids to go to French school for 50 years, that that's apparently not enough because he's fretting about the language people speak at home and what they watch on TV. So this is a concern, I think, for all of Canada, because there are many of us who believe that Francois Legault, who was once a separatist minister in the Parti Québécois government, has never quite given up on that. He's going by a more step-by-step -step approach. But it is of concern to anybody who cares about multiculturalism, the vision of Canada that we share, people from all over the world using two official languages in their public discourse, but of course, using whatever language they want at home. And, and still not much of a uh, response from the federal government uh, on, on those kinds of issues. Uh, Rachel, let's go to you, uh, your pick of the year. So my biggest political story is the Liberal NDP supply and confidence deal. Just from a procedural nerd perspective, it kind of stopped that will they, won't they of every confidence vote that came up. But I think it also had major implications for every single party. Look at the NDP, they're in fourth party status and they were able to make some big wins with this deal. The Conservatives, it completely changed the dynamic of their race because whoever was going to win, they knew they had a longer runway to be able to introduce right. themselves to Canadians. And for the Liberals, he gave Justin Trudeau time to think about his political future, but also optimistically through this deal, probably try to cement some legacy items that he can either take into the next election or have standing as things that he got done. Right. Big questions. We don't know how long uh, it, it's going to last. Uh, Marika, uh, your story uh, affects a broader number of people than yeah. just here on Parliament Hill. I'm saying my, the biggest story this year is cost of living because it touches everybody. And I mean, at Christmas, we see it touching people's budgets with what they're doing at Christmas, how they're spending their time, what they're able to buy. And so because of how pervasive it is and because it will continue, I think most importantly, into the next year, it's the biggest story. And I think it will be a big determinant in terms of who is best positioned to win the next election, how it's dealt with. And could affect election timing too, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Tom, you wrote a column uh, on, on ctvnews.ca uh, predicting that 2023 could be an election year. Let's hear your rationale for that here. Yes, I, I heard the shrieks <laughs> go out from across Canada. No, no, not another election. But yeah. if you look at the math, Len, 20 months is about the, the length of time that the average minority government is around. And Trudeau now is well into the second year of this minority government is second in a row. And if you look at Mr. Singh's recent musings about perhaps voting against the government, you realize that those around Trudeau are going to start looking at a couple of things. One is Trudeau's in his eighth year as prime minister. And you know and I know that Canadians at some point, mm. they just want change. They don't want to let one party believe that they can be there forever. At the same time, Mr. Trudeau is pushing hard on some issues, talking about things like immigration, talking about things like whether or not we should have a renewed health care deal. And I think that given the fact that he knows that there's a certain amount of time for him to accomplish those things, he will be the one to pull the plug. He's not going to wait to be defeated mm -hmm. in the House by the opposition parties mm -hmm. ganging up on him. That's not his style. Mm -hmm. And I really do think that 2023, yes, I do believe it, is going to be an election year here in Canada. Marika, why is Tom wrong? <laughs> Presumably well, it would I, be I just think, first of all, even if the NDP Liberal deal falls apart, the Liberals have another dance partner with the Bloc Québécois, for example, so not all bets are off the table. I also think that the Liberals were quite burned from the early election trigger last time, mm -hmm. and I think they'll think twice about it going forward. 
I've heard that fall 2023 could be an option, but it's not the most likely option. I mean, there's so much we can't predict. As right. we saw from the past year, no, none of us were <laughs> predicting the Freedom Convoy on this show this time last year. So I won't say no for sure, but I just don't think it's as likely as Thomas saying. The yeah. prime minister has liked to run in the fall too, right? I mean, he was elected for the first time in the fall and then subsequent two elections were, were both Yeah, we also technically have fixed elections. election laws, but those don't well, appear to matter sure. very much. <laughs> Whatever. Events, events. Uh, are, you, are you packing your bag yet? Are you getting ready to go back out on the road? Uh, absolutely not. Maybe I'm naive, but I agree with Marika. I think the other factor in this is if we're into a recession by the spring, we're not going to be economically in a situation that any leader is going to want to go run and say, please elect me again. Uh, so depending on how the economy shapes out, I mean, fall would maybe be the more likely opportunity. But the other factor that is not for broad Canadian consumption, but MPs pensions. There are a bunch oh, yeah. of MPs um, who would have stakes in making sure that they last a bit longer yeah, than... the Liberals showed last time they don't care about that. I'm sure that's <laughs> not a factor for any MPs, their pension plans. <laughs> Tom Mulcair, Rachel and Marika, thanks for joining us on the Scrum. That's question period for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Merry Christmas again and enjoy the rest of your holiday season.